Well, welcome to Mansfield Bible Church. We're glad that you're here with us this morning uh, as we start uh, in the Texas heat, right? Uh, supposed to get some 100-degree weather uh, coming shortly, uh, coming to a, a world near you. Uh, uh, unfortunately, I hate the hot weather, but I love it too. And so, uh, you know, they're just, uh, I'm always conflicted at this time of year. I live here because I don't like all the cold up north. Uh, a couple of years ago, many of you have uh, been with me in my journey on my PhD, uh, that I started a PhD two years ago, and, and I started with a question. There was a question that I wanted to answer, a question that was troubling me, and I wanted to find an answer to it, or at least toward a solution to it. And that's typical for PhD work because your dissertation is based on a question that you're asking and answering. And you're giving information that nobody else has ever seen before and written about. That's what a, a dissertation is. If somebody starts writing or publishes right before you uh, turn in your, di your dissertation, you got to change the subject. you got to change the topic or you got to tweak it somehow to make it where it's something that hasn't been talked about ever before. And that's why you see some of these dissertations on very obscure things, uh, obscure people that you've never heard of before, or obscure issues, or they take it to the nth degree and go, why is that? It's because they're trying to find something that has never been written about ever before, and you're contributing knowledge. And so I was wrestling with a question that has been written about a lot actually. And the question is this, it's a statistic that I read years ago, and it's that 70% of our young people, when they graduate from high school, stop attending church. And they don't come back, except about half of them do, about 10, the next decade after they graduate, they begin to filter back at about 35%. So about half. That's too big a loss. Why is that is my question. What is it about the church that causes people to walk away? What is it that's, that we're missing here? And, and so I, I, I decided, you know, you've got to narrow the topic. And I, so I thought, I don't want to deal with the sociological aspect of that that's been written about ad nauseum. I want to write about the theological what is it that people are believing about the church that causes them, and not only young people, but others as well, to walk away? And so as I've, over the last two years, as I've tried to narrow this topic, one of the things that I've narrowed it to are actually two things that, that have been profound for me the last two years as I've thought about it. One is the nature of the church. Why does the church exist? I think that actually... We have missed why the church exists. In fact, my uh, supervising professor at seminary is writing a book right now on the nature of the church because he says we haven't done a good job of defining the church. And there hasn't been much written about it recently, about what is the church. Because we have all these ideas about what the church is supposed to be. And in fact, we've, a lot of us have bought into a, a, uh, a Christianity that's uh, very consumer-driven because that's our culture, right? And so we have a consumer-driven Christianity, and we want a church that's kind of like Walmart, has a little of everything, right? And if you don't have a little of everything, well, then we want to find those churches that do. And so this consumer mentality 
pervades, and, and so we go, well, this church doesn't have this, it doesn't have that, it doesn't have this, it doesn't check all the boxes, and so therefore you go find these other churches, right? It's one of the reasons why we have this, these blossoming megachurches, because those churches can provide those things. But then you find yourself disgusted with the megachurch or disgusted with that consumer mentality, and so that turns you off. And so it either turns you off or it's something that you're looking for, and either way it drives the nature of the church. And you've got to go back and say, what's the purpose of the church? Why does it exist? I know that I struggled with the whole idea of church when I first came to Christ. Because I came to Christ and I, and I realized the church I had been a part of, the tradition I had been a part of, didn't preach the gospel, didn't teach the word of God. And so I didn't find Christ there. And so after I came to Christ and after I began to read the Bible and see what it said about salvation, that, that, that salvation is a free gift to anybody who receives, I was like, oh my gosh, how did I miss this? And so I was disgusted with the church, didn't want anything to do with the church. I, I just like to think I was ahead of my time. Yeah. But what happened was, what I really began to wrestle with, in fact, I stopped going to church and I, I just would study on Sunday mornings in my, and I would pray and I would read the word and I would sing and, and I would provide for myself all the things that church, you know, might provide, but at a different level. And so I was thinking, man, this is, I'm, I'm really, you know, me and my Bible and the Holy Spirit, right? That's what I was thinking. And then as in, in my study, I came across an idea that I couldn't get around. A simple question, who created the church? Who created it? God did. It wasn't man's idea. It was God's idea. And I couldn't get past that, that God created the church, and if it was something he created for my good, then I needed to be a part of it, even though it was imperfect, even though I didn't understand the purpose of it at that time. And so that was one of the issues that I began to wrestle with. And I realized, I, don't, I, don't, I think that we have a faulty view of what church actually is supposed to be. But there was another issue that's captured my attention recently. And it's something that I think is, a, is, is, is really important for us to understand. And, it's a, and, and this is, it's going to get a little deep here this morning, so I, I just keep, stay with me as best you can. I'm going to try to explain it as, as clearly as I can. It's a deal called critical theory. Critical theory. I came across an article that was uh, titled uh, along the lines of, uh, you know, critical theory and Christianity. Are they compatible or incompatible? And it was written by a guy that, I had not uh, heard before, heard of before, a guy named Neil Shinvey. Uh, if you've got a handout, you'll notice that his is at the bottom of the page, and I encourage you to do more research on him. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about him, a little bit about what, he, uh, what drew me to him. He's not a guy that's just thinking lightly. He's not a guy who's just this radical dude that, you know, doesn't really know anything. This guy's brilliant. I mean, listen to, he, he went to Princeton as an undergrad. Here's, a, here's what he worked on while he was there. High dimensional function approximation. How many of you know what that is? Nobody, right? Maybe one in the audience. Of the, I don't either. I didn't look it up. He got a PhD in theoretical chemistry at UC Berkeley. And his PhD dissertation was quantum computation. And it included topics in quantum random walks, cavity quantum electrodynamics, spin physics, that's not spin, you know, like spin class, and in representability problem. 
Yeah, this guy's brilliant. He went to do some postdoctoral work uh, in Durham uh, at uh, Duke University, ended up becoming a professor there. He accepted Christ uh, at UC Berkeley, I believe. And so he began to, uh, uh, this brilliant mind began to, to wrestle with a lot of different issues. But then he had a seizure while he was there and found that he had a brain tumor. Successful operation. And so he quit his job as a professor at Duke University in 2015. He stays at home and he homeschools his children and he writes on issues important to Christianity. And it's called, uh, his title, now I see the title, The Incompatibility of Critical Theory and Christianity. Now, critical theory is something that uh, is, is a, an idea that not a lot of people would know that term, but a lot of people have bought into the concepts of. And you see it all over our culture. You'll see it in Hollywood. You'll see it in children's books. You'll see it all over the place. And when you begin to see it and understand it, you begin to realize it's everywhere and influencing our culture. And something that Neil said, and, and you'll, uh, if you read, if you go to his website, you'll notice a lot of stuff that I say about critical theory, I've been influenced by him at this point. And as I do more research, I'll have, have a broader perspective. But uh, here's what he said. As Christians committed to reaching our neighbors with the gospel, it's vital for us to understand not only the concepts that are shaping the culture, but also their relationship to the biblical worldview. We need to understand what's going on in the culture and in the scriptures. Just as like we exegete the scriptures, we need to exegete our culture so that we understand how our answers apply to our culture. Otherwise, we won't understand. And so as we look at this idea of critical theory, so you can kind of understand the broad scope that, this, that comes underneath this term, he says, uh, 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 Neil uh, says in this article, he says, over the last few years, new terms like cisgender, intersectionality, heteronormativity, centering, and white fragility have suddenly entered our cultural lexicon seemingly out of nowhere. In reality, these words and concepts have been working their way through academia for decades, perpetuated by disciplines such as post-colonial studies, queer theory, critical pedagogy, whiteness studies, and critical race theory, among others. These fields can be placed within the larger discipline of critical theory. So it's important for us to understand what this critical theory actually is. And... Uh, if I could define critical theory by one word, it would be power. Power. So critical theories about power. Those who have it and those who don't. Those who uh, are the oppressor in culture and those who are the oppressed. And so there's this view of power and it's not power in the sense that, that there's this, uh, this physical domination. In fact, he goes on and defines this idea of, of what's called hegemonic power. And he defines it. Oppressed groups are subjugated not by physical force or even overt discrimination, but through the exercise of hegemonic power. Big word, right? Now he defines it. The ability of dominant groups, oppressors, to impose their norms, values, and expectations on society as whole, relegating other groups to subordinate positions. And so the battle becomes a battle of ideas, a struggle, a fight for the one who establishes the dominant ideas of our culture and of our day. 
And that's what we see in our culture around us. We see it even on the political realm where we see nobody's listening to each other. It doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on. Nobody's listening. They're just trying to establish their position over the other one. And, it, and it's interesting to me as we see that going on uh, and, and realize uh, uh, what, what's happening there. And make no mistake, everything in critical theory is not bad or not necessarily wrong. It's addressing issues. There's a reason why people believe it and are buying into it because it's seemingly addressing issues that are important to them. And so it's, it's not something that we can just dismiss lightly or overlook. We do so at our peril. We need to understand what it is that are concerns to the people around us and we address some of those issues. This idea of hegemonic power, the power to set the agenda, uh, we see and have seen in our culture for a while. We've seen it as believers in Christ whenever naturalism was taught in the schools where you see evolution taught and not creation and you only see one view being presented. And you go, that's not fair, that's not right, that's oppressive. And so all of a sudden we've got to try, we try and, and it went through the courts and it keeps happening to try to establish dominance. So that creation is taught in the schools and the courts keep saying, no, that's Sunday school and this is science. It's like, no, both are science, but they're not seen that way by our culture. We've seen it in the false standards of beauty that women are supposed to be living their lives according to this hegemonic power that, that used to be in, and these airbrushed, beautiful photos and you kind of think, that's nobody. Nobody could be that. And then places like CVS Pharmacy and others are starting to change their perspective and saying, well, no, we're not going to show pictures like that that are unreal. And so you see this, this vying for power of setting the standard. Critical theory is actually a worldview because it, it addresses some of the key questions. And lest you think that I'm just texting somebody on my phone, uh, I, I'm actually trying to run this screen over here. So uh, we'll see how, it, how I do. Um, and pray for me because I'm ADD and so all of a sudden it's like, oh, wow, look at the pretty screen. Um, <laughs> there's these five questions that need to be answered when, uh, in terms of a worldview. Who are we? Who are we? What, how am I identified? How do I identify who I am as a person, as a, as a, as a person in, in this universe? What is our fundamental problem in this world? And then answering that problem. What's the solution to that? If you want to, if you're taking notes, you can, can just take your phone and take a picture of these questions. That's okay. Uh, what's the solution to that problem? And then what's our primary moral duty as a result of that? And then following that, how should we then live? And so each view answers those questions. You see that being answered from a critical theory view, but you also see it being answered from a Christian viewpoint. From a Christian viewpoint, there's this meta-narrative, kind of the big picture. Here's what the big picture looks like. Uh, not all the specific answers will look at those as well. But it's from creation to redemption that God created the world. He created the world with Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve fell. They sinned against God. And because they fell, they were thrown out of the garden and we are living in a world impacted by sin, impacted by death because of that rebellion against God. But God is in the process of redemption. He's redeeming the world and he started that process by Jesus Christ. First the promise of him coming and then his actual coming, then his death on the cross for our sins and then his resurrection from the grave. 
And so you realize that's the worldview of the Christian uh, perspective. The worldview from a critical theory is from oppression to liberation, that there are oppressed people. In fact, a term that's become popular is marginalized people. People are marginalized, and the, the, the solution is liberation. Now you think, wait a minute, God's about liberation, right? He's about liberating us from our sins. And, but they say, no, we're talking about here and now, existentially in this world, we need to throw off the oppressors. And we need to be the ones who come into power. And so there's that struggle between the two. This idea of the Christian worldview, creation to redemption, and critical theory, oppression to liberation. The first question was the question of identity. How do we identify who we are? As believers in Christ, when we read God's word, we're identified by who God is and who God says we are. We sing that song, you are who I, uh, I am, who you say I am. I am who God says I am. And that's actually liberating because I don't always say good things about myself. But God liberates me by saying, no, you're my child. You're the one that Christ died for. You're the one who is loved by the one who is ultimate love in the universe. We can either be defined that way or we're defined in the way of critical theory, power dynamics between groups of people. And so what you would be is, is uh, you would be, uh, in that view, you would either be in the marginalized group or in the dominating group. You'd either be the oppressed group or an oppressor group. Now there's a weakness that comes with that. I don't know if, if you see that, but the weakness of that position, and it's one of the weaknesses of critical theory that's, that has to be addressed by them, is that when a person is oppressed or marginalized and they actually are successful in overthrowing the oppressor, Typically, what happens to them is they become the new oppressors. In fact, Jürgen Moltmann, who I read a couple of years ago, a German theologian who uh, uh, is uh, the grandfather of liberation theology in Central America, he, he was, he's, in fact, he's behind some of this. Uh, he basically said the only thing that changes is who the oppressors are. How many of you have read Animal Farm by George Orwell? Many, many of you had to read it for uh, English class, right? And in, the, in that case, the animals overthrow the farmer because uh, now they're in charge of the farm. And guess what happens? The pigs begin to dominate and they began to be the oppressors and they began to do to the animals what was happening to them and they become no different than the ones who were there before them. And I think he's really speaking to that issue of, of the, the weakness is there is no peace. There will never be peace in that system because uh, a never a world peace, especially because you always have those who feel like they're being oppressed or marginalized or not put, put ahead of the group. And so then they begin to push themselves to dominance. And so there's always going to be a fight on your hands. Here's the scary part. I think the church at large in America has bought into critical theory. We've been in a power position for a couple of hundred years and now all of a sudden we're not. And what do you see happening? People complaining, fighting, wanted to reestablish the narrative. 
I think we bought into the wrong thing. I think it's impacted what, how people view the nature of the church. And it's scary to me because when I began to realize that, I thought, wow, we've missed it. Here's a simple example of it. This uh, came out in the news, a couple, uh, I think, last week that uh, an atheist organization says, in no God we trust. Not in God we trust, in no God we trust. You can see it's Metroplus Atheists. And they got these signs all down the street. You can see them going down the street there. And, and these signs were put up. They did it legally. And Christians' first response was, we got to get rid of the signs. And they said, no, they were put up legally. They, they can stay. And, and Christians were arguing against this. Why? Why is there even a debate? Because Christianity's bought into the power model rather than God's model. And that scares me. Because I think we're otherwise no different and we've given up the very things that define us as a church, as believers in Christ when we do that. So we've got to answer the question, who are we? But then we've got to answer the next question, what is our fundamental problem? According to critical theory, the fundamental problem is obviously oppression. And so what do you do about it? Pretty simple. You want to liberate that. And so their primary moral duty is to dismantle structures and institutions that oppress. And you see that happening in our culture of fighting against, trying to change everything that would stand up against and, and marginalize anybody in our culture. And so how should we live? Our whole life should be in pursuit of that. If a person was consistent and you see people being consistent, what does God say? He says we're created in his image. Whole different perspective. Not created by defining how we relate with power groups, but God tells us who we are. We are his children. We're created in his image. Christ died for us, even though we were sinners. I mean, that whole perspective. And so what is the problem? Well, we were created in his image, but when we sinned against God, we fell. We fell in relationship to him. Death reigned and rules in our world. And so what's the solution? It's forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ's atonement on the cross for us. And so you realize that, that that's a whole different narrative. So what's our primary duty? Communicate this message. Help people to understand that God forgives them. And so how should we live? Now here's the existential part of the Christian message. That we love God now. We love our neighbor now. We love our atheist neighbor. We love every neighbor that we have, no matter who they are, no matter what they believe. See, we either buy into the power model or we buy into the love model. The only way we're going to change our world is to change human hearts. Human hearts are changed through God's forgiveness and through transformation. And then you don't have to necessarily have laws because we, our heart will naturally want to do beyond what the law requires. Because of God's transformation. In Romans, you have that whole section of theology, what we believe, and then here's how we then live. And he says, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice under him. So we live our lives for him. No longer being conformed, verse 2, by this world. 
no longer being conformed, but transformed by the renewal of our minds so as to sense for ourselves what is a good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And so there's this transformation of the heart. And that's where the change needs to come. That's where liberation truly happens, is there. And so we have to answer these questions in a way that's meaningful for those who are around us. But I think we've missed answering the questions that our culture cares about. And I think it's because we're not loving our neighbor. I think we don't understand how significant that is, how important that is. What did Jesus say in John 13, 34 and 35? A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, by your love for one another. It's not by my theology that people understand. It's not by my criticism of them that they understand. It's not by my ability to, to, to show them the scriptures. It's by my love, how I live out what I believe. Because see, you can tell me that you believe any number of things, but all I have to do is watch your life to see what you really believe, right? Because you're going to live out what you truly believe. And what I want is God to conform my life and my lifestyle to him, to his truth and his word. The interesting thing is, is that because of uh, critical theory's perspective on power, is that when they see a person that is in a position of power, say, my life as a pastor or any pastor and I proclaim the word of God, what do they, how do they view that? They view that as a guy trying to maintain his power position and so I use the Bible to maintain my power position. You go, wow, well, how, how do you even talk to folks that believe that and hold your faith? Well, it doesn't mean I need to change what I believe. It means that I need to understand what they believe and begin to understand how to address some of the issues from a biblical perspective. Another thing that they do is they look at the scriptures and say, well, the scriptures were written in a patriarchal society when men ruled over women, and so therefore that's not uh, God's view. And uh, in fact, they even throw God off in, in some, at some points. Uh, but and so they look at the scriptures and they throw out the scriptures. Well, once you've thrown out the scriptures and you've thrown out anybody who can say anything about the scriptures, what do you have left? Power. Whoever can shout the loudest. Whoever can make their point the best. Those are the ones that rule. Those are the ones who set the narrative and set the agenda. See, I think the problem with the church is, is that we've forgotten who we are. We've bought into the power play and, and, and God says that whenever we bought into that, whenever we exalt ourselves, what is he going to do? He's going to humble us. And when we humble ourselves, he exalts us. That's what scripture says. And I think what the church has got to get back to is a humble position. In fact, I think that the first three hundred years of the church were probably our finest hour because we were under the greatest oppression and I see the church in other places when, when Christians are under attack and I see the healthiest churches ever and the church in America absolute power corrupts absolutely when we get power we are corrupted and that's what you see happen with the church for 200 years we've been in a power position and we're no longer in that position 
Because we were playing the wrong game. We were playing the power game. We were playing unwittingly the critical theory game. Instead of the humble position, Jesus came among us with all power. I mean, think about it. All power. And he could have used that power to squash people like a bug. He could have never hung on the cross. And there would have been piles of bodies all around him as people keep coming after him. And pretty soon, maybe they would have quit. I don't know. But you look at that and you think, he didn't do that. How did he use his power? For healing and for resurrection. He rose from the grave. That's why Paul prayed in Ephesians 1. I pray that the eyes of your heart be enlightened so that you'll know the power that's been given to you. That's the same power that, ra that raised Jesus from the dead and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. That's what he prayed for the Ephesian believers in chapter 1. That's what I pray for us is that we would understand where true power resides and it doesn't reside in us setting the agenda now. What it resides is in our God and that we humble ourselves as a church to him and that we humble ourselves as individuals to him and we let his power prevail. We let him work rather than us. And so there's two issues that I began to wrestle with as I was thinking toward an answer. And, and, and you're going to hear me talk more and reference this idea of critical theory. I'm not going to go into detail like I have this, this morning. I, this is kind of a, a preliminary kind of get acquainted with what that is. Because I think that it's very dominant in our society. I think it's one of the reasons why we wonder why sometimes uh, uh, we, we say, man, this idea of respect of authority doesn't exist in our culture any longer. Well, duh, guess what? If you're authority, you're not going to be respected. You're going to try to be overthrown, and people don't respect something that they're getting ready to overthrow. And you go, oh, now it makes sense. It's intentional. It's not that they just weren't taught. It's intentional as a part of critical theory, that you disrespect authority and that you try to overthrow it and you try to establish the new narrative. So there were a couple of issues that I wrestled with. One, as I was looking through the scripture, what does the scripture have to say about oppression? God spoke about it a lot longer, uh, a lot earlier than, um, than critical theory has been around. In uh, Psalm 119, 134, it says, Redeem me from man's oppression that I may keep your precepts. There's a prayer. I don't know what the psalmist was being uh, oppressed by in Psalm 119. We're not told who he is or what the circumstances were, but that's what he prays. In Luke 4, 18, Jesus was in the synagogue in Nazareth on the Sabbath, on Saturday. And he was asked to, to, to read and say a few words, right? Because he's a visiting rabbi. And so he picks up the scroll and he reads from Isaiah 61 these words. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. In Isaiah's day, hundreds of years before Christ appears on the scene, he talks about oppression. You see that in the minor prophets as well. That some of the judgments they had was because that came upon them was because of Israel and even the surrounding nations was because of injustice. Jesus gets in a lot of trouble because his response is, these words have been fulfilled in your hearing. And they got angry, furious with him, wanted to stone him and tried to. 
In Isaiah 58, 8, 6, he's talking about, is this the fast that I choose? You're going to fast. You're going to deny yourselves. Is this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? And you see God involved in, in liberating from oppression from Egypt, uh, 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 the children of Israel going out of Egypt uh, during the times of the judges. You see this in different people's lives like Gideon when he's delivered from the Midianites. They're oppressed. They cry out to the Lord. That's their response. They cry out to the Lord. And then God brings a deliverer and delivers them. We see uh, the Assyrians and being delivered from them, the Babylonians and being delivered from them, the Romans who came along. You think scripture is replete with this stuff of our God who cares about a uh, liberation from oppression. And yet, why does he allow it to happen to the church? I think we're at our finest hour then. I think we're at our finest hour, we're our purest, our, our strongest, whenever we have to fight for our faith, when we have to be bold for what we believe, when we have to begin to study a little bit more because we've got to answer the tough questions and the easy questions no longer are satisfying. The trouble is, is we in our world see God as an oppressor as well and people want to throw him off as the sign for the atheists. In fact, Job struggles with that. He says, does it seem good to you to oppress, to despise the work of your hands in favor of the designs of the wicked? And he's saying, aren't you an oppressor as well? And I love that uh, Elihu, who uh, he got criticized by the Lord uh, with the other guys that were speaking. But um, he says, the Almighty is beyond our reach and exalted in power and his justice and great righteousness he does not oppress. God is ultimate power and he knows how to use it. We as humans do not. It always seems to corrupt us whenever power happens. And so power resides with God and it resides with his truth. You want true liberation? When I was at UT in Austin, when I was walking to class, there's this huge tower in the middle of campus. And on that tower around it are Jesus' words, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Now, I know the University of Texas uses those differently than how they were originally to be understood. When we know God's truth, that's true liberation. That frees our hearts. That frees us from this fight for power. It frees us to, to, to embrace God. In fact, Pilate, whenever he was, uh, Jesus was before him, says, what is truth? The right question. How do we answer that? God is truth. His word says he is. In fact, John 1.14, the son is truth. It says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And then in verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Why? Because John 14, he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the father but through him. In John 16, we see the Holy Spirit is truth. And it says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. When a person receives Christ, they get the Spirit of God as well. And the Spirit is the Spirit of truth. And he guides us, John 16 says, when the Spirit of truth comes he will guide you into all the truth in first corinthians 2 we're told 
Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we may understand the things freely given us by God. He not only gives us truth, he gives us a spirit to understand it. He gives us his word. In John 17, God, uh, Jesus says as he's praying for his disciples, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. So we have the living, God, uh, living word, we have the written word. And, and, he, and he gives us the spirit of God to help us to understand truth about our world. And so when I look at our world and I look at this idea of critical theory, I think, how do we address this? I think one thing is, is we need to get on our knees. I think the church needs to get on our knees and pray. We need to pray for our nation. I think we need to get on our knees and begin to wash people's feet around us. We need to be a humble church and not an arrogant one. We need to be a humble church that's not just about ourselves and that doesn't just look at signs on the street and go, what's wrong with those people and why are they putting these things up? It's like, no. We should expect that. In fact, when we look at this, and we look at our world, instead of getting worried and concerned, God's not worried. He's not wringing his hands. Instead of getting worried and concerned about that, we need to be excited because God is purifying his church. He's purifying our lives. He's driving us to follow him and to seek him. I think we will be at our finest hour as a church, as churches in America. We need to also realize that God is not going to be cavalierly dismissed. God will work. And he wants to work through his people. I think that we need to be charitable in our words. I think that if we don't, I think we miss the point. Nobody's going to be convinced of Jesus Christ as Savior if we're trying to argue them, if we're judging them, if we're getting down on them, if we're complaining about it, if we're writing negatively about it on Facebook. I think none of that helps. Because Jesus said, that the world's going to know we're believers by our love for one another. The new commandment I give to you. That you love one another just as I have loved you. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples. That's love. And we need to be a people that love our neighbors. We need to be a people that love God and love our neighbor. Simply that. We need to understand our word. We need to understand what it is that he says. In fact, here's a quote from Neil Shinvey. He says, When a church demonstrates true neighbor love and fellowship across lines of race, class, and gender, it undermines the idea that critical theory is the only path to human flourishing and gives credibility to the charge that critical theory fails to deliver on its promises. We have a world that needs Jesus Christ desperately, but they need a church that humbly loves them. That's what's going to draw a hurting world to an incredible God and our loving Savior. Let's love our world. Let's not buy into critical theory and try to play this power game. And let's pray for our nation. Father, we come to you and we thank you this morning for who you are and what you've done for us. We thank you that Jesus Christ has died for us, that you've used all power not to establish a power position, but to completely blow that out of the water. 
that that power that you had was not to dominate us in an unhealthy way. It was to demonstrate love to us through Christ, his resurrection, being seated at the right hand, that your power position was over sin and over demons and over Satan himself. Lord, I pray that we would live according to your power and not our own. I pray that we would humble ourselves and seek your face. Because that's where you say a land will be healed. Father, help us to stop trying to promote ourselves in power and to start simply promoting Jesus Christ and him crucified. Change us, Father. Help us not to be conformed to our world, and I think and I'm afraid that we have been. Change us to be conformed to you, O oh God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm.